Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The last chapter of 1 Corinthians will be reading two verses this morning as our text. This is, this is the penultimate, which means the next to last, the next to last sermon in a series that began, I think, in 2009. So we've taken a lot of breaks, and uh, next week, Lord willing, will be our last. So, let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is the word of the Lord. So here at the end of his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with incidentals, things that aren't particularly important. Greet this person, say hi to this person, this person's going to be going here, this person is going to be going there. By the way, put put aside a little money the first day of every week so that there's money saved up that I can take to Jerusalem. We need to help our brothers and sisters in, that, uh, in the church in Jerusalem under persecution and very poor. And in the middle of these incidentals, these, lesser, these things of lesser importance, the Apostle Paul stops and he makes these commands. Now, there are six commands in this last section. And these are five of them. And then the sixth one comes a few verses later. The first command, be on the alert. The second command, stand firm in the faith. Third, act like men. Fourth, be strong. And fifth, let all that you do be done in love. The Apostle Paul, last week we saw, told them he's going to come and visit them. And I explained at the time that part of the reason this is significant is that his visit might be expected to be a little tense. You can't you can't just take for granted that the Apostle Paul is going to come and visit them because the things he said to them are profoundly difficult. And I didn't use this word when I was typing up the manuscript, but I think it's accurate to say that he has humiliated them. This morning as I was preaching the first service, I thought about a mother who's dealing with a disobedient and rebellious little boy, and at some point she says to her little boy, "Uh, you wait, you just wait until your father gets home, all right? And all of a sudden the phone rings, and it's daddy. And she gives, she recounts a little bit of what's been going on with her son, right? And then she says, well, he's standing here right now. Would you like to talk to him? And her little boy is like, 
Son, it's your father. Hello, Daddy. Son, I will be coming home. And I don't like what I'm hearing. And I will deal with you. So that's the kind of feeling that we have here as we read about the Apostle Paul saying, I'm going to be coming. And this is a theme in the letter. And it comes at some of the most crucial points where he'll stop and he'll say, I'm going to be coming. And you can just feel all the Christians in Corinth cringing to think of this man coming. Well, why would the visit be awkward? What exactly in this letter? I mean, if it's taken us so many years to get through it, we might not remember what's been said in this letter and why it's going to be intense when he shows up. So let me remind you. Right at the very beginning of the letter, in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by close people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, two things to learn from this. Number one, by close people. He names his source. He's not worried about close people being angry at him. They told him, and everybody that he's rebuking is going to know they told him. In other words, open communication. Don't ever keep secrets. If you're in leadership, you don't ever let somebody come to you and say, some people say, no, 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 no. I say to them, no, don't tell me what some people are saying. Tell me what you are saying. I don't want to hear you representing other people, right? So the Apostle Paul doesn't let people talk behind people's back. He just names them. Close people have told me. Now, what have they told him? He says, you're quarreling. In other words, they're divided. Last week, Stephen, in his excellent Sunday school class, which I told you last week was excellent, and not any more of you were there this week than were there last week. It's excellent. So you should be there. You know, come on, get up a little bit earlier, you know? Okay. I said last, that last week, Stephen was teaching in the class, and he was talking about the nature of arguments. And... It's very important to distinguish between quarrels and arguments. Chesterton says people today quarrel because they don't know how to argue. Okay? And quarrels are all about me and my insecurities and my ego and you and your insecurities and your ego saying, that's a quarrel. Arguments are serious business. And so the whole purpose of electing elders and the whole purpose of an elders meeting is to avoid quarrels and to have good arguments. Because arguments is, are how you come to judgments. You know, there's a reason we as Presbyterians believe in a plurality of the eldership. And you say, well, no, I'm Baptist. And I say, Presbyterian doesn't mean baptizing infants. It means presbyteros. It's the word for elder. The really distinguishing fact of this church is that we believe in the plurality of the eldership. Plurality means many. I don't make the decisions in this church, even down to who preaches. We had a no-brainer yesterday, a guy available to come and visit and preach on the 24th. 
But that no-brainer went out to all the elders, and I didn't issue the invitation until the elders said, yeah, okay. And that's the least thing that the elders have authority over. We can't do a baptism or have the Lord's Supper without our elders. And so quarrels are about our egos, whereas arguments are principles and judgments. And any marriage, any church that's not having arguments is completely failing at what they're supposed to be doing. And so the Apostle Paul is not faulting them for having arguments, he's faulting them for having quarrels. It's all about me and you and whether I'm better than you, right? That's a quarrel, and we're not supposed to do that, so he faults them. Then he goes on in verses 26 to 29, another problem of Corinth was that they were very, very proud. And so he humbles them. He says this, beginning with verse 26. So they're proud, and he says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You know, you ain't nothing, he says to the congregation. You guys are all nothing, you know. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. So you ain't nothing. You're the foolish things of the world. This is what he's saying to the church in Corinth. To shame the wise. God has chosen you lower people to shame the higher people. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You're, 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 you're weak. Okay? You're foolish. And the base things of the world and the despised. So you're foolish, you're weak, you're base. Base is what the column stands on. The base of the column. You're way down. And debased. Uh, Yeah, contemptible. But, But honestly, if he just said base, why would he say debased? It's a joke. You know, isn't it the same root? I don't know. Anyhow, all right. Okay, the despised. Oh, despised. I was confusing it with debased. The despised, yeah. God has chosen the things that are not. I remember when Cornelia was here getting her PhD in in mathematics. She went out to a conference um, in California to deal with mathematical not theory. And I told people she was out there studying the things that are not. I thought that was a good pun, you know. So this is what the Apostle Paul says to them. You guys are weak. You guys are base. You guys are foolish. You guys are not. That he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. So here's the Apostle Paul doing what could accurately be called relegating them. They think they're in the Premier League. (laughs) No. As a matter of fact, God God has shown up to play soccer for them. God has given them soccer skills despite the fact that they're so far down that the Premier League, you know, is is not even in their dreams. They're not, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're not A-class minor leaguers. Now, he continues his rebuke of their pride in chapters 2 and 3. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. So 
so, you know, they're foolish, they're base, they're all this stuff. And then he says, I couldn't even talk to you as spiritual men. So they're not spiritual. But as to men of flesh, so they're fleshly, they're not spiritual, as to babes in Christ. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying you guys are babies. You're babies. You guys are all a bunch of babies. I gave you milk. You're not just babies, but you're milk-drinking babies. <laughs> you haven't even gotten on solid food. Now, where does that come? When do you start solid food, mothers? Six months. So it's not that they're seven-month-old or, or terrible twos or even ones. They're, they're before six months. They're still on, on milk. For you were not yet able to receive solid food. Indeed, even now you're not able for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Now, do you feel the tension? There, you should feel the tension of what he's saying to these Christians, because it's tense. He's not complimenting them. He's relegating and relegating and relegating. And listen, unless the Holy Spirit is in their hearts and possesses them, they are getting angry and bitter. Who is this apostle? And who does he think he is to talk to us like this? You know, I like to think of him right at my home church in, in, in Wheaton, you know, college church, you know, our 10th Presbyterian, you know. Oh, oh, who does he think he is addressing us like this? You know. Now then, in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says this, Let no man deceive himself. If, many, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. You guys think you're wise? Uh-uh. Become foolish so that you can gain wisdom. The believers in Corinth look down their noses at the Apostle Paul. So you say, see their pride, their pride, their pride, their pride, their factionalism, their pride, their quarreling, their pride. And then he brings in the fact that they're not just proud towards one another. You could sort of put up with that. But they're proud against the Apostle Paul. You know, they look down their noses at the Apostle Paul. He says this, he says, for who regards you as superior? And what do you think that you did not receive? You feel this, people. But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. Now, listen, we so often have to work with pastors, college students to try to get them to read in a way that makes sense. And so we did a number on, because the minute he opened the Bible and started to read, what did he do? Well, he did what all of us do when we read the Bible. What do you do? You go like this. You go, and so he began to read, and that's what he did. 15, 20 minutes. It was mind-boggling. We, we focus on one word and simply tried to get him to bring his voice down at the end of the word instead of going up, and that took about eight minutes. Ten? Over ten, Stephen says. I don't even remember the word. What was the word? Apostle. We were trying to get him to, instead of going apostle, to go apostle. 
and we'd explain it, we'd do it, we'd on and on and on and on. And he'd go, apostle? No, 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 apostle. Apostle? Apostle. Over 10 minutes. Now, why does he do that? Well, we all know why he does it, because we look at the Bible as being a talisman, a rabbit's foot. We look at it as being pious hallmark card text. And the minute you read a text that is, is meaningless, you go into this lilting thing, you know, da 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 But the Bible actually has meaning. And when we read it that way, we're denying it its meaning. So let me read this again so that it has meaning. For who regards you as superior, right? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Now, do you get the feeling? He's completely, completely, Completely rebuking them. He's mocking them. I wish you had become kings so that I might reign with you. Because we all know that's what the Apostle Paul wanted to do was reign. It's completely humiliating to the Corinthians. And then he continues in verse 9. This is in chapter 4. And he says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He's just gotten done saying, can I reign with you, please? I think God has reduced us as apostles to the lowest place. We're a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Uh, in New York City, Bishop Daddy Hall had, uh, an Episcopal bishop, had his seminarians go out and they would wear uh, sandwich boards, you know, where it would be harnessed over his shoulder and, and it would have a sign in the front and a sign in the back. And my dad said that his favorite one was as you walk toward the guy, it said on the front, I'm a fool for Christ. And then when you looked at the back, it said, whose fool are you? The Apostle Paul says this. We are fools for Christ's sake. And then he says this, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, 
we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world. The dregs of all things, even until now. So how would you like to get that letter from the Apostle Paul? It's just awful. And what's awful about it is now for 2,000 years, people have been reading about how you diss the Apostle Paul. Corinthians are infamous for their treatment of this precious man. You don't know what scum is, drive south on 37 and take a whiff. Okay? It's where the sewage treatment plant for the city of Bloomington is. Then the apostle picks up the theme of his coming visit, the same theme he just returned to at the end of his letter. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 and 19, now some of you, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. You see this theme of him showing up, you know. He's writing this, you know, it's easy to send an email, (laughs) you know. But how about in person? I'm going to come. I'm going to come, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out. Well, what does the Apostle Paul want to find out? I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. (laughs) Sounds like a Marine. You know, we're not dealing with words. I want to see what power you have. And of course, the power is what? It's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus Christ. Then he turns. Now, this is the high point of the pride of the church, right? I mean, you just feel this theme of pride all through this, right? You can feel the tension. You can feel him putting them down, putting them down, putting them down. They must not be proud. He even defends himself and the other apostles. Don't you look down on us. Yes, we're scum, but in our scumhood, we glorify Jesus Christ. Your pride isn't glorifying Jesus Christ. And so, here he has all this pride in the church, so what does he do? Well, he turns to the question of incest. And he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Listen, there's nothing that deals better with our pride than incest. You know, we think we make choices about what's dealt with. We think we make choices about having abortions and about committing sexual sin. We're all about choice, autonomy, free will. You know that the Bible says, talks about God giving over men to adultery? God is not the author of sin, and he doesn't tempt us. 
But whatever scripture is meaning when it talks about God's agency and us being given over to sin, make no mistake about it, there's no better thing for God to give over a proud church to than incest. And that's what the Apostle Paul deals with. Calvin says the reason he deals with incest with them is they're so proud, and nothing is a better tool to break the pride than bringing the incest into the open. And so the Apostle Paul does that, too. The Apostle Paul then turns to the matter of their taking each other to court and asking the pagans to judge between them. He says, he begins it by saying, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there isn't among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother? And that, before unbelievers? Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So it's not just that they're going to court, it's that they actually are defrauding each other. They're stealing from each other. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And so he's putting their defrauding of each other precisely in the same list as all these other sins. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be, don't be deceived. He's talking in the church. If I could do one thing about the sexual cesspool of our country today, I would get Christians to shut our mouths to anybody but each other. We have no right to speak to the world about sexual immorality, the church today. None. Absolutely none. The church has been an orgy of sexual sin, of our brand and our kind. You know, fornication, adultery, pornography, all these other things. And now the world wants its sin, which is homosexuality and transsexualism. And we're like, oh, no, no, no. And the church is filled with this kind of stuff, and so is the church of Corinth. As a matter of fact, he moves on now to the sin of procuring, hiring prostitutes. And again, remember, he's speaking to the church. He's not releasing a statement to the world. And he says this, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. This is unbelievable to think of their pride, isn't it? When you see the sins that are all through them. In chapters 7 and 8, he turns to various controversies and provides them counsel. Yes, it's okay to marry. Although single men and women have the advantage of being free to concentrate on serving and pleasing the Lord single-mindedly. Then he says, yes, don't chafe at being a slave, but if you can get your freedom, do so. If you remain a slave, though, don't be a slave to anybody but Jesus. 
Yes, you're free to give your daughter in marriage. Yes, widows are free to marry. And then after a short section on eating and drinking in which he deals with the controversy of whether or not Christians are free to eat and meat sacrificed to idols, he turns to their mistreatment of him once again. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.11, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? They don't just look down on him, but they don't support him financially. He says, if, if I give to you spiritually, is it really too much for me to ask you to give to me financially? Now he goes on and says, I wouldn't touch your dirty money. That's not quite what he says, but it's, it's sort of, I have a preacher sitting in the second row every week and it's kind of... <laughs> you okay with that? That's okay, yeah. All right. So he complains about the fact that they won't help him. Isn't that awful? Honestly. It is awful. Having said that, he speaks of the sacrifices he's made to care for them and to preach the gospel. Given the fact that they look down on him and don't support him financially, it's a terribly embarrassing section. In chapter 10, he returns to the theme of meat sacrifices to idols, and he gives them the order, quote, flee idolatry, unquote. In chapter 11, he turns to the problem of their women not wearing head coverings when they pray and prophesy. And it is in this section that we have some of the most foundational teaching on the meaning of sexual identity, of manhood and womanhood, that there is in all of Scripture, And he ends this section with this rebuke. He says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. (laughs) Oh, man. You want to argue with me? We have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Does that sound like a flatterer? Does that sound like gospel coalition? You know, Nashville statement ends. We have no other practices, nor do the churches of God. Uh, Not so much. The Apostle Paul is so humble, so humble, that his assertions of authority are absolutely unflinching. Now, I know that you all think it should be the opposite. I know you all think that really humble men will always minimize their authority. You know, they'll always say, but, but, but then again, what do I know? You know? My favorite cartoon about pastors and preaching is this dude sitting at his desk in his office, and he has a consultant behind him drawing figures on the board, and it shows the decline of the attendance of the church. You know, month after month, attendance is down, down, down. And the consultant is saying to the pastor, I'm no expert on these things, But I do wonder whether it might not help if you didn't end every sermon with, but then again, what do I know? (laughs) The Apostle Paul doesn't end. And remember, he's dealing with the issue of women. (laughs) Women. You know, that's especially where men always want to fall all over themselves saying, well, I'm no woman, but... And of course, the one thing you know is he's a woman. 
as he says it. Right? I'm no woman, but sometimes I wonder whether... No, he says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing is, I'm convinced that when that letter went to the Corinthians, there was no section of that letter that the women of the church were happier about than that section. And you know why? Because... It's only a few women that cause the problems. It's a few women who refuse to acknowledge that God's made them women, and they oppress all the other women of the church because they're just mouthy you know what's right? Right? And they go, bah, 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 bah. They won't be silent. That's what he's talking about, silence. They won't be silent. And you know who, you know who they drive crazy? They don't drive the men crazy. You know, that's... You know, we're married. (laughs) You know, we're used to it, you know. You know, we come to church to get away. No, that's just, (laughs) that's a joke. It doesn't oppress the men. It oppresses the godly women. We were sitting in the pastor's college this week, and one of the pastor's college men was talking about the fact that his wife used to be a rabid feminist. And I said, you know something? I bet anything that our church has more feminists in it than any other Christian church in the community. Now, I don't mean present feminists. I mean repenting present participle feminists. And if you're a woman in America today and you see how mouthy women are, they have no shame of their sex at all. They're just like, and you're a woman who has repented of doing this. It is intolerable for you to sit with other women doing that because you have repented. And to have the pastors and elders allow that kind of thing to go on in church is awful. A few years ago, we had uh, a situation where somebody got up and spoke from the pulpit. It was a woman. And the reasoning was very, very good, I thought. Of course, I'm often wrong. But afterwards, let me tell you, the response of a couple of the women in this church was immediate and salubrious, helpful. They were not going to put up with it. It was fascinating. There were no men complaining. (laughs) No, not any men. The Apostle Paul says, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And all the godly women breathed a sigh of relief. Halfway through this chapter, the Apostle Paul turns to the terrible abuse of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, what was the abuse? He says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So whatever the abuse is, it's so awful that it invalidates the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not efficacious. It is not the Lord's Supper, says the Apostle Paul. So what was the abuse? Well, he says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. 
So they're coming to the Lord's table, and they're making a conspicuous display of their wealth. Because those who are rich have lots of wine. And the way they show how much wine they have is that they get drunk. Now, is that impossible to imagine? Yeah, it is. And that's how low this church had sunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. This is shame upon shame. What terrible sins this church had corrupting their life and worship. Drunkenness at the very table of our Lord. Horrors. At the end of this rebuke, he again warns them that he will be coming to visit and he will reinforce these rebukes at that time. He says, chapter 11, 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Now, do you think those remaining matters are upbeat, positive, Likely not. (laughs) Chapters 12 to 14, the Apostle Paul turns to spiritual gifts. They're fighting with each over over who is superior to whom. And it's clear those who have been given the gift of speaking in tongues think they're the top dogs. This causes the Apostle Paul to respond, among other things, by declaring this. Chapter 14, 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. You know, this whole letter is like nanny nanny poo poo. I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. (laughs) It's unbelievable, this guy. He's not done. Next, he turns to the problem of women speaking in their public services rather than being silent. His correction, chapter 14, 34, and 35. Note this. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Listen, nothing even remotely similar to this directness and unflinching opposition to homosexual rebellion, nullifying the distinction God has made in the sexes, made it into the Nashville statement. And you say, wait a second, it's not homosexuality. I say, oh, 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 yes, it is. This is the homosexuality that the church is in an orgy of today, but denies that it's homosexuality. The Bible says women are to be silent in the church, that men are to speak. So the church says, heck with that, we're going to have women and men speak indiscriminate. Well, what indiscriminate of what? Well, indiscriminate of sex. So it's homosexual. It erases the distinction that God has ordained for the sexes. That's what homosexuality is. But the church has her homosexuality that she just loves. But don't let the world do anything wrong with their body parts. We eviscerate authority and submission from the relationship of marriage, from the relationship of the people of God in the church, and we do it with an impunity. 
And that's homosexuality. <laughs> you know, it's erasing the distinction that God has ordained between the sexes. That's what homosexuality is. Instead of two sexes, there's one, homo, okay? Well, he gets to the end of this section, and again, he can hear the arguments against what he's saying coming up. And, and, you know, we understand that. We can imagine that today there are a number of people that want to argue about what I just said, right? And probably the real issue is not me saying it's homosexual. The real issue is that women should be silent in the church because, you know, you're going to come out with all this patter about how, well, back in that time there were certain prophets who, uh, who, who, uh, I mean, you know, if I go into this, you're all going to be confused because I'm going to be making up this big story that comes out of an academic journal about why it doesn't apply, you know. Let's just forget that. You know the arguments that are made. It was this and that, but not those and these, and and it was up and down, but not around and through, you know. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And so, you know the Corinthians were very sophisticated. They all looked down on the Apostle Paul. Now he's saying, women are to be silent. And he hears them like any good preacher does. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And so here's how he ends this section. He says, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. <laughs> oh, my he really wants our approval, doesn't he? <laughs> he just really likes you to like him. You know, if anybody does not recognize this, well, I may in fact be wrong. Now, he says, I don't recognize you. You don't want to recognize me? I don't recognize you, nanny nanny poop poop. I mean, come on. Read scripture with understanding. That's what he's saying. In chapter 15, he turns to the resurrection of the dead. Would it surprise you that the Corinthians, some of them denied the resurrection of the dead? I mean, the resurrection of the dead. What did the apostles preach but Christ crucified and raised from the dead? And they're denying the resurrection of the dead. So the apostle Paul says, now if Christ is preached, 15 verse 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And by this time, we're all slap happy, battle fatigue, you know? It's like, <laughs> are we going to make it through this letter? Hey, would you stop reading the letter this week, and we'll come back for more next week, and next week nobody shows up, right? The apostle goes on to teach that there most certainly is the resurrection of the dead, and in the midst of his teaching, he returns to the theme of his suffering on their behalf, and in behalf of his preaching the gospel to others. If there's no resurrection of the dead, he says chapter 15, 30. Why are we, he's referring to the apostles, the preachers of the gospel, why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Follow the logic. You say there's no resurrection of the dead, and I'm dying daily. What kind of an idiot am I? Why would I die daily if there's no resurrection of the dead? If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. (laughs) Oh, man. Then after turning to more instruction on the coming resurrection of all the dead, the apostle ends this section with these commands. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So now we're in the incidentals. We're in the closing matter. All right? We're back where we were last week. You with me? What kind of a ride was it? Was it a Holiday World ride or a Cedar Point ride? Cedar Point. It's intense. And he's bringing it to an end. And he says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. There's only one more command left in the book after this. We'll get to it next week. And that command is, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. (laughs) There's a reason why you take 10 years to preach through Corinthians. (laughs) You know, it's like, Pastor Tim, What are the high points of the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, there you have it. There they are. And all the book of 1 Corinthians is, is the elaboration, the embroidery around what I just gave you. You know, he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. Around and around and around and around and around. He elaborates on the things that I've given to you. Now, what are the commands that we read today? Well, the first one is what? Come on. Be alert. What does it mean to be alert? Stay awake. Why do you need to be alert? Well, because the Apostle Peter says this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is why you need to be alert. Everywhere are our enemies. And where are our enemies? Well, thankfully, there is a sanctuary. And that sanctuary is the church. And we come to church so that we don't have to be on the alert. And if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know... The, the city of Corinth was wicked. I mean, they were committing incest. Oh, oh no, actually, what? Oh yeah, it says that the pagans out in the city didn't do that, but the Christians did. <laughs> well, you know, back and forth, okay. What about getting drunk at the Lord's? Oh, that's not the pagans, is it? How about denying the resurrection? Oh, that's not the city, is it? That's actually the church. How about the women being... Uh, mouthy. Actually, it's the church. Every single 
thing I've read to you is the church. And so the devil is a roaring lion roaming to seek someone to devour in the church. That's the lie that we receive today, that the church is the place of safety where you don't have to be on the alert. No, 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 no. The second thing is what? Stand in the faith. And so standing firm is the opposite of uh, shilly-shallying. It's the opposite of sashaying. It's the opposite of slouching. Stand firm. Dead ahead, stand firm. Upright back, stand firm. In the faith. What is it that makes you stand firm? It's the faith. It's not that you have the gift of manhood. I don't have the gift of manhood. I'm telling you, I'm as effeminate and androgynous and wussy and malakoy and as they come. But you know, I read the Bible. <laughs> and I pray, and other people pray for me, and somehow this pathetic man stands firm. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's a moment-by-moment thing. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't believe how much of my life I spend not standing firm in the faith. So don't deny your duty to stand firm because you say that you, your, your mama didn't love you or your dad didn't love you. No, no, no. It's in the faith. It's not in your family background. It's in the faith. Now, the next one is what? King James says what? Huh? King James says what? Quit you like men. Quit you like men. And so... Our entire generation says, got that one covered, thinking that the word quit means stop. <laughs> but the word quit in Elizabethan English doesn't mean stop. It actually means carry on, you know? Commend yourself, you know? Accomplish it. Quit you like men. In other words, act like men. And because we believe in reading the Bible with a lilt, we think, okay, okay, here, here it goes. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love, and we trot along. She said she's glad Jody's writing the music. <laughs> yeah, she says you're supposed to be quiet, but you just spoke. You just spoke. You just spoke again, but you just spoke again. Listen, this kind of speaking is not what it's talking about. Honestly, it isn't. Women speak to me all the time during church services, and sometimes they do it aloud, and sometimes they do it quietly. And my preaching is always improved by the women of this church speaking to me. Communication goes on all the time as one man speaks. 
All right. Now, why am I making fun of the way we read this text? Well, because we all just take it in stride. None of us get offended at this text. None of us. Who's going to get offended? It's it, the Bible saying to us, you know, act like men. You know? Nobody's going to get offended at it. Why? Well, because we know what he's talking about. What is he talking about? Well, be on the earth. Stand firm in the faith. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That's what it means to act like a man. To be a man. Right? Well, then why did he say act like men? He was calling them to manifest their sexuality. He was telling them that there was something about the sex God made them that they had a duty to live. Is a point of fact, beyond the earth, standing firm in the faith and being strong is what it means to be a man. When you're men, you do, beyond the alert, stand firm in the faith and be strong. And you let all that you do be done in love. This is what it means to be men. Do you understand this? Huh? So then why do we have, all over the church today, men who are leaders and famous saying that there should be no reparative therapy? And you say, what? What's reparative therapy? And I say, well, reparative therapy is the therapy that's being outlawed by all the states and cities of our country. It's variously called reparative therapy, conversion therapy, and gender dysphoria therapy. Well, what on earth is gender dysphoria? Well, gender dysphoria is when the sex that God made your body and the sex that you want to live out are two different things. Gender dysphoria is when you're not comfortable with the sex God made you. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is speaking to men who don't want to be men, saying, be men. And the reason he has to say, be men, is that men don't want to be men. Okay? So why do we have all these famous Christian leaders saying that this kind of counsel, this pastoral care, the Apostle Paul's giving, all right, is wrong. Why? You know, this isn't the only place that the Bible says this. In 1 Kings 2, 1 to 2, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon and his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and what? Show yourself a man. He commanded him to manifest the sex that God made him. So why do we have all these famous people saying that Christians, pastors, ministers should not counsel people to be men? Because that's all, that's all reparative therapy is. Sitting down with a man and saying, you need to be a man. It's a man that has problems being a man. You say, you need to be a man. And here's how you be a man. All right? That's what it is. And you say, well, who's saying that? And I say, well, in the first service, I said who it was, but I'm not going to say it in the second service. Because there's some people here who really love this guy. And so I won't quote him. I'll quote him, but I won't give you the name. But it's in the book. 
that's being released tomorrow that you can download for free today. If you go on Warhorn Media, you'll find the link, all right? And here's what they say. They say the goal of reparative therapy is heterosexuality. Are you with me? And what is heterosexuality? Be a man. Or if he's writing women, be a woman. All right, that's heterosexuality. Man, woman, as opposed to homosexuality, no difference. He says the goal of reparative therapy is heterosexuality. This goal is not one that biblical counselors can embrace. The Bible never declares that heterosexuality is the goal of a full and contented life. The Holy Spirit will not give his grace to pursue goals not prescribed in Scripture. David said to his son Solomon, act like a man. The Apostle Paul said to the church, act like men. The Bible never declares that heterosexuality is the goal of a full and contented life. The Holy Spirit will not give his grace to pursue goals not prescribed in Scripture. And so, pastors and elders and ministers and counselors are not to meet with men and women who are having problems with the sex God made them and call them to be faithful to that sex. That's what reparative therapy does. In Cincinnati now, it is illegal for a counselor to sit down with a minor child and read this text of Scripture. Because it's reparative therapy. Be a man. You can't do that. Why? Well, because the child could commit suicide. Snopes says, that's a lie. They don't say that you can't read Scripture. And I say, well, how do you avoid being guilty of reparative therapy, which is a $200 a day fine in Cincinnati, if you read, act like a man, be men, and then open that up to the people in your counseling office. <laughs> That's precisely what reparative therapy is. Now, why would famous Christian leaders stoop to such equivocation? Okay? Why would they do it? Well, on October 5, 2015, at a certain seminary, there was a meeting of the Association of Christian, Certified Christian Counselors. From all over the country, they'd come to this meeting, and when they met, there were a group of sodomites and lesbians who came to the campus and protested this meeting. And their protesting signs were what? Love needs no excuse and reparative therapy kills. And so the president of the seminary and the executive director of the Counseling Association called a press conference. And at the press conference, they said, people misunderstand us, we're opposed to reparative therapy. Okay? And what they said in that, uh, in that press release is this. I have to find it. This was their press release. Actually, um, this is, after their press conference, this is an article they put up on the website 
reiterating what they had said in the press conference, and this is the article from that website. They say, Reparative therapy is a superficial response to homosexual and transgender change. And Christian ministers, notice they're not addressing psychiatrists and secular psychologists, Christian ministers must instead call all people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is they're setting up an opposition, calling people to be men and to be women, to be the sex God made them, and on the other hand, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? As if you can't have the one and the other. And ministers have to choose. They can either call people to be men, or they can call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's say that you were uh, a Christian who knew me back in San Diego when I worked for the Wittenberg Door. Okay? I'd just gone downtown to the plaza, and I'd just gotten my ear pierced, and I had a little, a little cute cross in my ear. Long hair like Roger Daltrey and gay. You know what I mean by gay? Soft. You know what I mean by soft? You know, I was just like, I had good shoulders, so I was a man, but I had like sensitivity and a pure steer like Bernie Top and you know, all this stuff, right? Right? And you're a Christian and you see that I'm just gay, right? You see that I have what is known as gender dysphoria. You see that I don't want to manifest as a man. I want to manifest androgynously, right? I want to be like queen. They hadn't come along yet, but that's what I'm talking about. Or Alice Cooper, with whom R.C. Sproul plays golf. True. What would you say to me? This is what you would say to me. You would say to me, Tim, God made you a man. It is godliness and faith for you to love your manhood and to live it. You need to repent of your androgyny. You need to turn to Christ in faith, right? That's what you would say to me, right? You would tell me to flee my sexual dysphoria, my gender dysphoria. You'd tell me to flee my androgyny. You'd tell me to flee being gay and be a man, <laughs> you know? And is that not to call me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this. If you were committed to calling me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and you met me at the plaza in San Diego back in 1973, how would you call me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ if you didn't tell me to repent of my androgyny? What would you do? Tell me that I was wearing the wrong kind of shoes? You know, would you tell me that I shouldn't smoke? That I shouldn't drink? I didn't actually at the time, but I did smoke. That I shouldn't go to rock and roll concerts? And if you did that, you would be rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. There's nothing more fundamental to me than my manhood, other than my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? Don't you take for granted this command of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, act like men. 
It is a catastrophic statement that should shatter everything we thought we knew about the faithfulness of the church in America today. There is no church in America today that is telling men, act like men. The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is never telling people, act like men. And I used to be the executive director. That's the one thing you can't say in the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Why? Well, because nobody has a doctrine of manhood. You can't say, be a woman. Because saying, be a woman, presupposes that there's something that's womanly. So what are you going to tell women is womanly? Be all you can be. Pursue excellence. My daughter can whoop your daughter. And if you're a homeschooler, you add the word intellectually. (laughs) And this is our doctrine of femininity. No, no stupid young woman is ever going to open her mouth about wanting to be a mother and a wife. Oh, no, she's not going to do that. And you say, well, nobody says that you shouldn't be a wife and a mother. I say, well, then how come no woman ever talks about wanting to be a wife and a mother? You say, well, they don't say it. And I say, you know something, the cruelest lies are always told in silence. Okay, that's a quote of Robert Louis Stevenson. If we're going to be Christians, we have to begin to see the scandal of the very words of Scripture. And everything I've read to you this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians is scandalous. It is absolutely opposite the spirit of our age. Is that what I'm going to say? No. The spirit of the church. The book of Corinthians did not rebuke the city of Corinth at the time of the apostle Paul. And it doesn't rebuke the city of Bloomington today. It rebukes the church of Christians. It rebukes the church you grew up in. It rebukes us. It rebukes our witness during the week. And so we have to decide. What do we want? We want trademark and and branding in the church. And, And so, because it's famous people who tell you they're warriors for God, and they say that kind of, and I would like to use an expletive for what I just read to you from these men's mouths. It's awful. And what are we going to do? Well, you know, we're not the only good church. It's like, duh. (laughs) Yeah, we're not the only good church. Does that mean that we're not supposed to aspire to have discernment? Does it mean we're not supposed to tell you, stand firm, be alert, act like men? Stand firm in the faith and let love permeate everything you do. Is it not loving for us to say to somebody like me in San Diego back in 1973, be a man. Wouldn't you have to have love for me to do that? Don't we have to have love to tell a lesbian to grow her hair and to be a woman? I can't think of anything that would motivate me to say that to a lesbian other than love. Right? Because I'm not attracted to her. 
Now, I'm not talking about sexual lust. I'm just saying attracted, you know? There's nothing about her that's going to appeal to me to be tender and, and sort of masculine and, and caring and everything, right? Because her hair is short, and she's telling me, you know, uh, blankety blank, right? I mean, we all know this, right? So we have to love. We have to love. Listen, if we don't love sinners, then we put out the statements that I just read to you. There is no love in those statements. That's just trademark protection. You know, that's the kind of lies that everybody involved knows what's going down but can't quite put their finger on it. And so, guess what? The protesters stopped. I can't believe it. (laughs) The hostility was ended. As a matter of fact, what they ended up doing is one of the most notorious homosexuals in the city where this happened wrote this long statement saying, I can't believe it when even this president so-and-so of this seminary has the ability of reversing his position on reparative therapy. Great things are happening for the LGBTQ community in America. I mean, when even he is willing to change, you know. Hey, 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 hey. He got the message. He got the message. How come Christians didn't? And you know why? We're not alert. You know, we're not alert. You think it's a game. You think religion is a game. You think it's something to make you feel uplifted on Sunday morning. (laughs) You think the Corinthians felt uplifted when that letter was read to them when they came to worship the Sunday after it arrived? Did they feel uplifted? Okay, all right. I'll stop. It's time to bring this train to a stop. Now listen. Right now, who you are with your conscience wounded by the word of God. Right now, Jesus says to you, I did not come for the righteous, but I came for sinners. And in this church, you have the freedom to be a sinner. And it doesn't matter to us if you're homosexual or heterosexual or black or white or Chinese or Caucasian, even Japanese, even French. Under the cross, there is no level where you get above other people. You're just a sinner. That's what you are. And if you're not a sinner, you may not come to this table, if the elders could come, please. Because this table is only for those that know that there's no hope for them except the blood of Jesus. Every single one of us here is homosexual. That's the thing we don't get. Every one of us is a homosexual. Because every one of us wants to shirk the duties of our sex. Okay, do you understand this? As women, we we would prefer to avoid the burdens of women. Am I right, mothers? 
And as men, we would prefer to avoid the burdens of manhood. Am I right, fathers? And because we don't want to carry the weight of the sex God made us, we come to the table, and the table gives us faith, it heals us, it gives us the mercy of God, and we go from this place prepared to live as men and women. And you know, I'd like for you to be a prayer warrior, and I'd like for you to speak in tongues and all that other good stuff, but I'd like us as a church to start by just being men and women. I mean, you know, I have my sights set real low in 2017. I'd like this to be a church where we all realize we're all homosexuals, some with their bodies and others with their minds and their submission and their authority. And we all agree to repent of that and to act like men, which for women is what? Well, it's to act like a woman, not like a girl, not like a boy, not like an androgynous, malakoy, effeminate, not like a butch, to act like men and women, okay? And so if you know that you have no ability to act like men, and that you love to not be alert, you don't want to stay awake, you don't want to stand firm, you'd like to slouch, please. If this is you, you confess that to God. And you say to God, would you please wash me with the blood of Jesus? Because he was a man, a man of faith, an obedient son, And he poured his blood out to cleanse us from our sins. Starting with the sin that you're thinking of right now. This meal is very intimate. Because nobody can come to it who, who, who is not fully aware and disgusted by their sin. And that's an intimate table. And so I invite you to come. Listen to the words that were read five centuries ago in Geneva by Calvin. Where he says this. This is from the prayer. Listen to this. He says, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who admits your people into such wonderful communion that partaking of the body and blood of your dear Son, they should dwell in him and he in them. And now listen to these words. We, unworthy sinners, approaching your presence and beholding your glory, do what? Abhor ourselves. We despise ourselves. And we repent in dust and ashes. But that's not enough for him. He goes on and he says, We have horribly sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. We have broken our past vows. We have dishonored your holy name. We are not worthy of the least of all your mercies. 
And that's the prayer you join in every time we have the Lord's Supper. I've, I've prayed that prayer hundreds of times in this church. And it's true. And that is the qualification to come to the Lord's Supper. Because we bring our sin and we lay it before Christ and we partake of his body and blood, which is given to us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so come to the table with faith. Come with faith. Trust that your heart, black as it is, is loved by God and that he has come to save sinners. Let me read to you the words of institution given in this same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by the Apostle Paul. He says, I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had blessed it, He broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. And after the same manner also, our Savior took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes again. 